On this episode of the Charlie Charlie One podcast, we're going to be speaking to Pam Diamond Bunting. Now, Pam is a mental health nurse by trade. She's got a very interesting story, um, which we're going to delve into, talking about how she started her career and how she ended up here, working with RMA, the Royal Marines Charity. But now, uh, in more current times, she specialises in the field of alcohol. And what I mean by that is working with people who potentially have an alcohol dependency or other alcohol-related problems, and she helps them to get over them and to get their life back on track and to bring everything into line. Now, I'm not going to steal her thunder. She's going to tell her story right now. But as always, you know, these, these are some of the things in the charity that's we deal with which are maybe not so well known so if after listening to Pam's story and learning a little bit about what she does you think she could help either yourself or someone you know within the Royal Marines or the wider Royal Marines family please send them our way direct them to Pam and she will work her magic and do what it is that she does to get those people that need help the support that they need. Pam welcome to the Charlie Charlie One podcast. Uh, thank you for giving up your time. I know we've all got a little bit more of it now that we're in lockdown because of COVID-19. But I just wanted to have a chat, really, a bit of an informal chat. Firstly, um, introducing you to those members of the core family that may not have, have met you before or interacted with you before. And then tell everyone a little bit about what it is that you do because one of the missions that I have with this podcast is to let everyone know actually how many people work within the charity and how diverse the help and support is that we can actually give. Because I know one of the biggest problems we have is there are a lot of people out there in the wider core family that do need support, but they're not actually aware that it exists and that we can give it to them. So I want to talk a little bit about what it is you do, and then at the end, obviously, I'll leave all the details and information that people need so that they can get hold of you if they need to. Brilliant. Cheers, Mark. So let's start, I guess, not right at the beginning. We're not going to go back to when you were a kid or anything, but let's talk a little bit about your background. <laughs> um, because I'm going, to be, I'm going to be honest, and I'm a little bit embarrassed. I don't fully know uh, your background and your history. So... I mean, wherever you think is a good starting point, let's go back to there, and then we'll work our way forward to today. Okay, thank you. So, hi everyone. Some of you will know me, some of you may know me in the future, but uh, hopefully this will give a bit of a context to, to what I actually do. So, I'm a mental health nurse, and I trained up in Chester and from the Wirral originally, and I started my mental health training in 1991 and back then nobody really knew about mental health certainly not the way it is today and I actually trained in an old asylum so we're, we're talking you know proper old school it was it was built in the 1800s the, the hospital I trained in so if, if I think about how far things have moved from that, you know, that, that's fantastic. But, but that's where I trained, up in Chester. And I got a real thirst for, for addictions, really, and, and mental health. So, so that's where it began. I was 19 when I started training. So you can all work out my age now, even though we're only 24. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's where my passion for, for mental health and, and particularly addictions began really mark well, you said you were 19 when you started it and, and it was back in a time where mental health was kind of just brushed under the carpet and it wasn't really talked about yeah. certainly yeah. on the scale it's now so what was it at that young age then that made you want to get into mental health and then specifically to specialize in addictions yeah i mean that, that's quite interesting because mental health back then so psychiatric nurses were always classed as not real nurses that's what we were known as but I didn't even know what psychiatry was and I always knew I was going to work with people 
right back from probably when I was about 12 or 13. I was really interested. I thought I'd end up going into kind of probation work. So I've mm-hmm. always been interested in, in people who push boundaries. And I guess the link with that is I heard about psychiatry and it just intrigued me when I was working with adults with learning difficulties at the time when I was 18. And it just, it really intrigued me. And then went on to do my training. And during my training, we had to do a a special placement. So we were very hands-on nurses back then. So I did over, so nurse training is three years, three months. And over two thirds of that training was actually practical on the wards. And one of my placements was an addictions unit. And it just fascinated me because where I'm from on the Wirral, the 80s, there was there was a big drug problem. That's heroin hit the Wirral, one of the first places in the country. So there was a, a huge issue. So it just intrigued me. And some of my friends sadly went down that route. So th- that was what, what pushed me down the addictions path, really. And that was that was early on in your nurse training that you did that. And that's is that pretty much what you've focused your entire yeah. career on, or have you gone backwards and forwards? Yeah. No, no. So, so the majority of my career, so I qualified, and then I worked in Wirral Drug Service for five years on Merseyside, which was completely crazy. So heroin had been around for about 15, 20 years in a big way on the Wirral land. And, you know, there, there was, it was the biggest drug service in Europe at the time. So I was only 22 going on 23 when I worked there and I did some, some hardcore nursing. It was, uh, well, some of the things most people don't realise happen, you, you were seeing with, with the drug scene then. So I did that for five years and then I went into mental health crisis in the same area. So there was a, that was the early days of mental health crisis teams. So there was a, a big crossover with mental health and drug use. So, so that kept me in that field. But then I had my daughter and that was where it, it changed the geography really. So I was 30 when I had my daughter and then I just thought, I don't want to raise her in this environment so I know that might sound quite selfish in some ways because lots of people have to raise their children in areas like that but I'd I'd seen I'd had 10 years almost of seeing really quite outrageous behaviours and I was for the parents out there listening and particularly I guess the the bootnecks who have deployed without children but then have to deploy once they've had children, you'll get this. It, it changes things. And that changed things for me to the point where I had connections with Cornwall. I'd always been on holiday down here when I, when I was younger. And I just thought, I want to raise her down here. So I moved down here and, and relocated just over the border into Cornwall. And started working in Glenbourne Unit in Derriford because I wanted to keep my nursing going just while I, I stabilised here. So that, that's the mental health unit in Derriford Hospital. So that was how I ended up changing my geography because, you know, people that know me know I'm a bit of a plastic scouser from the world, but I'm, <laughs> I'm an immigrant now. And when was it that you moved down to Cornwall? What year was that? Uh, that was 2003. Okay. Um, and then by chance in a, a nursing journal, I saw this job advertised and it was alcohol nurse specialist for the Ministry of Defence based in HMS Drake. None of the Ministry of Defence HMS Drake things meant anything to me. Didn't have any military connections, but the job felt like it was written for me. That's what I was going to ask you next. You know, how did how did you get involved as a civilian with the military? Where did all that start? Um, so it was you saw the advert HMS Drake, um, which I'm sure everyone listening to this will know is a huge naval base down here in Plymouth. Um, hundreds of thousands of personnel down there. You know, living that military life. We all we all used to enjoy going out and having a good drink and <laughs> letting off some steam with the lads and going down the infamous Union Street you know, for whatever our mission was of the evening. 
Yeah. And so that was that was early two thousand three. You got involved with the military. That, that was, yeah, two thousand and four. So I, 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 it really was one of those moments. I saw the advert and I thought I have got to have that job. So I did loads of research, and very fortunately, I got the job, which was based in the DCMH. Yeah. So. Yeah, lots of people will be familiar with that terminology. If you're not, it's the Department of Community Mental Health. So the MOD has, when I last worked for them, I think they had 15 DCMHs around the country. Their tri-service, the one in Drake is, is Navy-led, and, and that's where I, I ended up. So I, I joined there very wide-eyed in March 04. And how did... Working with the Navy and, and the MOD and the military, how was that? How did you find it different to the kind of things that you'd seen first of all in, in the Wirral and then working at Glenbourne in Plymouth? The only thing I can so I've, I've actually had more time in the military arena now. So when I look back, the only way I can describe it is it's like entering some different world <laughs> that, yeah. that you've always known exist and and i guess those of you that have served will have felt this when you joined as well you kind of know it exists but you don't really know anything about it until you're in it so i i joined as a as an experienced senior nurse but did not understand the way people spoke um there was like this different language the problems were different so so the the threshold for dealing with people is much lower in the military than in the nhs and what i mean by that is in the nhs and, and sadly things have got worse you you really have to be mega struggling before you you are able to be dealt with by secondary mental health services which is what the dcmh is classed as but in the military, because it's classed as kind of occupational mental health to keep the fleet functioning, et cetera, et cetera, you can deal with people much earlier, which is a real privilege. So the problems were still problems, but they weren't classed as serious mental illness most of the time. So you so kind that, of got in there at the early stages before it became a, a huge problem. Absolutely. And then you could intervene and, and start dealing yeah. with it. Oh, that's that's yeah. right. That's good to hear. Yeah, and 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 the point is because you, you're dealing with an essentially healthy young population, you've you've got more chance to to be able to support people and turn them around to be able to continue with the job. So I find that a huge privilege. However, I would suggest it took me at least six months to understand what people were saying to me. Because <laughs> so, Jack speak. Well, absolutely. And somebody actually bought me a Jack Speak book and I was like, what, the hell is that? <laughs> what on earth is this? What do you mean? You know, going ashore. We're not on a ship. <laughs> what do you mean? Your, your cabin? Your grot? All this stuff. Which is just like, it's my language now as well. But you, as you probably remember, Mark, when you joined, it's bonkers. No, we had the same. My training team, they gave us a, a crib sheet, an A4 piece of paper that had all of the the major words we needed to learn, honking, hoofing, redders, threaders, all that kind of stuff. And that was part of what you have to do in the first two weeks or whatever. You have to learn those words and just force yourself to understand it. Yeah. You know, kind yeah, of like learn, learn a new language and they just embed themselves in the uh, country and throw themselves in the deep end. Yeah, absolutely. But one, once I found my feet, I... I absolutely loved it. I, my job then was working tri-service. So my job was the alcohol nurse specialist then. So, you know, I got to treat people, mainly Navy at that time. And and that I think that's a really interesting point. So so back in 0405, Bootnecks didn't really come to the DCMH. It it was it was like a really strange thing so there was the, like this mythical creature called a bootneck but you never saw them even though we knew the southwest is heavily populated with royal marines and, and the dcmh served them we didn't really see that many proportionately so it just why do you think that is well i think back then you know things were very different so that it, it was post telic 
Herrick was was kind of just starting to bubble up, but mental health was spoke about very differently. Yeah, and I, I yeah. think if you if you think back to to your serving career, and you will know more than me how it was looked on then. You know, mental health was was probably not really talked about i would suggest then in the core and there was a lot of man up and crack on and, and there is still that now of course but there was and, i think sorry i, I was just going to say and i think as well i mean I've, I've seen the culture personally change since 2001 to what it is now um, and what i mean by that is if you go into a camp now there's a lot of guys you open their locker and it's 80 pound t-shirts there's protein everywhere they're in the gym every yeah. night they're looking good back in the early days when i when i was you know first starting my career you used to have a pair of 10 pound jeans you know a pair <laughs> of crappy boots a shitty t-shirt and all your money went on boozing and you went out partying all the time so yeah. i think maybe a lot of you know also those those mental health issues could have been masked by yeah, people absolutely. going out drinking but it was just a culture and no one really picked it up and said you might have a problem mate it was just kind of like this is what we do. Everyone, everyone does it. Everyone's good. We do a bit of fizz, have a big blow up with the lads, you know, and we just, like you say, crack on. And uh, yeah. no one really talked about it. So you, you've seen that positive change over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've got certain people to, to thank for, for allowing me to start understanding the core because that, that's what happened. I became intrigued. So anything I don't understand I want to know why. I want to know why I don't understand it. So what, I, what I'd started to do with the Navy was offer educational briefs to command to teach them how to, to manage problem drinkers because as any serving personnel or, or former serving personnel will, will know, there's a lot of covering up, a lot of collusion with drinkers. And, and ultimately, that to me, that's seeing people off because I've seen the end result. So... Bruce Reak, some people will remember, so former RSM, he he heard about what I was doing and started to invite me to units wherever he was RSM and giving start, start to give educational briefs and from that. So you you will know what the core is like. It's a very closed male environment. So yeah. Anyone outside of that who, who's not a Royal Marine, it's very difficult to, to penetrate that environment, particularly being a, a female civvy. But fortunately, and over the years, and it did take years, I started to, to get accepted and, and I, I think valued by, by the message I was trying to give and, and the support I was trying to to give to units and individuals and you know cert, there's cert, been certain people along the way who've really helped make that happen so you know it's like in, in the core if if a bootneck says someone else is all right another bootneck will go well they must be all right so I think it, it kind of created a bit of a cascade effect but that that really did take years and years I'm not suggesting for one minute I was accepted and, and probably still I'm not fully accepted on some levels. You know, that's, that's just human nature. Yeah, I, I remember years ago, um, again, back it, it was in training and the training team said that the core is so small. I think back then there were only 6,000 of us at full strength. Uh, mm. The core is so small that if you get a reputation for being you know, the Jack guy, the one that sees everyone off, the selfish guy, then that will spread. That will be in units that you've never even been to before you've got that. But then conversely, yeah. if you're the good guy, you know, you rally the lads around, you're always the one that's digging out and helping people out, that reputation will follow you. And there was not a place you can really go within the core because it's so small where you won't turn up at a unit and go, oh, that's that guy that my mate knows and yeah. he's all right or, or he's not, he's, you know, he's Jack. And so, yeah, I, I get what you're saying is, you know, it took a long time, like you say, but once the word starts spreading, you know, actually Pam's all right. You know, she's really good. She helps Joey out and she helps Smudge out and she helps Ginge out. And, you know, she's, you know, she's a good egg. Go speak to her. That, that reputation spreads quite quickly through this small organization that we're part of and mm. uh, then develops trust, you know, and guys that yeah. are struggling aren't so apprehensive about 
reached out to you and asked you for your help. So yeah. I just want to go back a little bit. I don't want to get mm-hmm. too deep into this, but you said a little bit. I, I you know, I, I don't personally. I don't booze very much. Um, you know, I have occasional drink at Christmas. Those days are behind me. The days I talked about just now, going out with the lads and partying four or five days a week. But you said a little bit about um, between guys that drink, there's there's sort of a lot of stuff is is hidden and there's collusion. So. Yeah. Is that, do you mean like, so if there are a couple of guys that are drinkers, that they kind of try and hide it between themselves? Like, I don't know if this is the right term, like functioning alcoholic? Is that yeah, so, a correct? Yeah, so I, I absolutely get where you're coming from. So so the first thing, I, I um, the people that know me, if they hear me say this, will probably smile. I, I don't use the word alcoholic because okay. that conjures up something that's very far removed from most Royal Marines. So when, when I do my, my command briefs, I talk about dependency. So there are lots of people serving and former who will have a psychological dependency upon alcohol and some sadly will develop into a physical dependency, meaning they need to drink to function daily. But in the core, it's such a specific group of people so you're all boundary pushers you're all well sorry to generalize but this is what I've learned about Royal Marines over many years there tends to be that kind of black and white so you either really do something or you really don't and, and that can be really healthy so you you know you really push yourself at first but if you really do something with alcohol it means there are lots of very good drinkers in the core and unfortunately, okay. what, what I've seen over the years is people, you know, statements like, oh, it's just royals, royally, royally behaviour, and oh, it's just so-and-so, he's always like that. Now, that is the, the collusion that I talk about and the covering up. Right. And the more that happens. So if somebody has got, a, so you, when you say a functioning alcoholic, you mean, I would guess, somebody that has got, everyone knows they've got an issue, well, people may not know actually, but they've got an issue, but they can still do, you know, do their normal routine. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and you would be able to name people to me now that you've known who were like that and maybe still are. The problem is that there's a, a common, maybe not so common now, but there was a statement in the course saying as long as you can turn to right time, right rig, you're all right. So that. That kind of attitude to drinkers is brilliant because why then would would that person need to challenge their alcohol use? So that's a bit of covering up. So there's lots of, there's collusion, which is basically covering up and, and not doing the right thing on lots of levels. Sometimes mates collude with each other because they think they're helping someone out. Sometimes it's your stripey because he's too busy with other stuff. Sometimes it, it's, you know, senior officers because there's too, too much other stuff going on for them as well, or it's just so-and-so, or maybe people don't know. Quite often, the higher up, people don't know stuff's going on, you, you know, things get hidden. But ultimately, yeah. for me, if, if people aren't dealt with early on correctly, then the message never gets out, so that allows somebody to develop an issue without any boundaries in place. So bootnecks are really good at responding to boundaries, you know that. However, and I would ask anyone listening to this to think about a problem drinker they've known and think about if they've had any boundaries put in place. And the answer is generally no, or if they have and they can't stick to them they may, may have ended up getting discharged or as a veteran ended up losing a lot of things around them. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, with the, the massive raise in, in the, the positive way we look at mental health now, there, there's a lot of information out there about how, say, for example, one of, the, one of your friends or your family, they can start to notice signs in, in you if you perhaps developed post-traumatic stress disorder or burnout or, or something similar to that. 
and there's also a lot of information out there where you can notice the signs in yourself you know mm-hmm. tiredness irritability you know there's the, the classics like the the nightmares night terrors that kind of stuff with, with um issues like post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. what are, are there any kind of things similar with with alcohol dependency where either a friend or a family member can spot the signs or the individual themselves could you know maybe sit there and go do you know what i'm, I'm going out drinking once or twice a week now but i'm blacking out i'm going nuts or you know what what are the signs either the individual can notice so they can jump in early and say listen i need some help or the or the family and friends can notice I think, I think that's a, a really brilliant question, Mark, because it's it's not something we talk about enough because we tend, that's why I don't use the term alcoholic, because we tend to think a drink problem is only when you're in the gutter and it really isn't. It's a massive spectrum. So signs, so that this is something that is quite classic of Royal Marines, that all or nothing. So you don't you don't need to drink, but when you drink, you can't stop. So, you know, people might have good intentions and think, oh, I'm only going to have X number of drinks tonight, pints, whatever. However, they wake up the next day and they've gone over that boundary. Blackout, you've mentioned, that that's a, a really good thing to mention because that's a, a characteristic of problem drinking. So that's not to say that you've got a massive problem, but if you have a blackout, that's signifying a, a high dosage of alcohol in a short time period that's why people black out because basically the brain can't function any longer with the amount of alcohol i mean without going into that that, that's in essence what's happening so if if you place boundaries for yourself and you can't stick to them that's a that's a significant issue around your drinking if you consistently black out that's an issue if you lose relationships because of your drinking then that needs looking at. Basically, if there's any negative impact of your drinking, so if you think of the G, most G1 in the, in the, the Navy and the Marines, over when I get quoted it from the G1 advisors, something like over 98% has an alcohol element. So it might not be that you know, you're getting done for drink driving, but it might be that your finances are affected by alcohol that you're adrift, you can't get to work, you know, if you're a veteran, you can't hold a job down. So if alcohol is affecting you at all in the negative, then it's an issue. Might only be a small issue or it might be a big one, but that's the time to look at it. Because if you don't, that's when it can grow arms and legs. You know, sleep, there's a massive impact on our sleep through alcohol use. Even one or two units affects the ability to sleep healthily. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if anyone wants to just Google alcohol and sleep, it, it's fascinating. The, the, basically, it stops us going through our normal sleep pattern, which we need both psychologically and physically to repair. Yeah, so I'm, again, a, I'm a big fan of sleep. <laughs> How many hours do you sleep a night, Mark? Do you know what? For a long time, um, I used to run on about five and a half to six and that was purely because I was just so busy and it was about a year ago that I realized as I was getting older that you can't do that and I, and I started mm. researching a thing called sleep hygiene yep Fab. so I basically went around the whole top level of my house and bought blackout blinds for all the kids rooms in my room um, I got I literally this week ordered just ordered myself a weighted blanket okay, I am um, I started to take all these steps to make my my sleep better quality, not necessarily Healthy. more quantity. Healthy, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a big alcohol element in sleep hygiene. So sleep hygiene is is big in mental health. If anyone wants to do a little bit of reading, if you go on the National Sleep Foundation website, that will give you you know loads of information on healthy sleep. But certainly that the the trap that people fall into often with alcohol and sleep is that we can't sleep so you end up drinking to make you crash but then your quality of sleep is rubbish so for anyone out there who's been hammered ever in their life they will know that they're even if you you deado asleep for 10 hours after being 
really drunk, you don't feel great when you wake up, you don't feel refreshed. And that's because of the impact on your ability to sleep healthily. So the more we use alcohol to help us sleep, the worse down that rabbit hole we go. So, you know, it's interesting that you, you know, you mentioned sleep hygiene. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too tree huggy and stuff, but lavender, like a leather, uh, leather, lavender scent, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the room and um, the old... Is that while, while you're wearing leather? So you're wearing leather and smelling <laughs> leather. <laughs> I don't want to get into that, what, we got, what goes on in my bedroom. Um, I just want to go back again, Pam, slightly. Um... Because if it's all right, we are. I just want to share a personal story because I think it might help anyone listening to this about a little thing that I went through. Yeah, please do. So this, this was back in maybe 2009, 2010. Um, so it was after I was injured. It was when Hasler Company was, uh, the rehab unit was pretty new down in Plymouth. And a lot of the wounded, injured and sick Royal Marines before it was tri-service were, were based out of HMS Drake. And that's where we went for recovery. So we're in Plymouth. You know, Union Street is synonymous with Plymouth and, and servicemen drinking. And I, I was still back then in, in that routine of going out with the lads, uh, you know, having a few beers a couple of nights a week, partying and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I started to notice things with myself where I would go out and normally if I'd gone on a night and have eight, nine pints of of Carlsberg, Carlin, or, you know, just a low regular strength lager, not like your Stellas or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I would like forget massive chunks of the evening. And, uh, I was just, you know, I kind of fobbed it off the start of, I'm like, ah, oh, it's all right. I just had a few too many, you know, this, that, and the other I'll crack on and carried on going out partying. And then, uh, one night I was out and, and all the lads at, has the company went out and they've been out since about lunchtime and i couldn't get out until i think it was seven o'clock in the evening so i thought perfect they're all going to be pretty well oiled by that point so i can slide into the group you know mash a couple of drinks um and i'll be able to i'll be all right i'll be able to survive the night anyway i went down and I met them all and that was about seven and I, I remember nothing from like 10 o'clock that evening until the next day mm. and mm. it was it was lucky so I was in a nightclub that I used to uh, I spent a bit of time working there as a nightclub dormer so I knew all the security guys they were friends of mine but I remember walking into that club and the next thing I remember a couple hours later is I was in a bus stop outside and mm. both of my prosthetic legs were off one was to the left one was to the right my arm, I've taken my arm off and two of the, the security guys at Dorman, they had a, a hand under each of my armpits and I'm sat in a bus stop and they were lifting me up and putting me into the boot of my wife's car, right? And, and I woke up in the morning, um, like a lot of lads have done in the past, I'm sure, with no clothes on, uh, in the fetal position on my landing floor with a kebab, which everyone, you know, luckily, my wife Becky's got a good sense of humour, um, and I have too. So I was like, okay, that, that's quite funny. And then about two days later, I, I sat down and I thought about it seriously, and I thought, well, I don't remember much from mm. being in that club to being in that bus stop. Mm. And as as humorous as it may appear, looking back on it, the reality is, I could have walked out in front of a bus, and I wouldn't mm. have known anything about it, and I could have died. And literally from that day. That was when I was like, right, this, is, this isn't worth having in my life anymore. You know, I love interacting with the lads and living that kind of culture that we did. But the reality is it's dangerous. So I literally knocked it on the head from that day, cold turkey. Like I said, I you have a, a beer occasionally at Christmas or whatever. But I just kind of, from that point, left it behind. And I thought, it, it's, it isn't worth it. You know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I want to live a long and healthy life. So I kind of knocked it on the head there. But, um, you know, I just wanted to share that because it, I, I kind of, for whatever reason, had a grown-up moment about it and mm. thought, this is silly, this could get out of control. And I don't think it was anything to do with what had happened. It was just, I was just living that normal life. But, um, 
yeah, just sort of knock on the head from there on. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's brilliant. And I think it, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because one of the traits of lots of Royal Marines and lots of service personnel is being in control and right. wanting to be in control and know what's coming next. You know, that's quite a common characteristic of, of service personnel. However, if you think about when you get absolutely smashed, which you must have been, you, you are completely relinquishing control of yourself and that yeah. anything could happen like you've just said you know people you could have been kidnapped and anything you know you, there's just no end to it and sadly I've known quite a few lads who've done things when they've been in a blackout because when you're in an alcohol blackout you still function you know you're not knocked out you still walk talk blah blah and you'll often commit offences and I've known some lads who sadly have had their careers ended by something that's happened in a blackout and yeah. fortunately you you like you said did the grown-up thing and took responsibility but again how many people have we met that time and time again they have these events and they say never again but they keep doing it and I think sometimes certainly with command chains they they can't get their heads around why do people keep behaving like that well the reason people keep behaving like that is because they've got a problem and they need intervention and you know it, it's quite straightforward to me but but clearly i've been in the, the field a long time and that's why it's straightforward when i when i see it like that but, you know people are complex and we make and that's why I really wanted to talk to you about this, you know, because I just wanted to get that message out there um, and, and raise awareness of, I guess, of these issues and, and how you help people that, that are facing these issues. Yeah, so, so, so sorry, go on. Sorry, no, no, you go ahead. So uh, I guess it, just explaining how, how I moved through my, my career, really, I, I stayed in the DCMH for um 13 years and then over the last few years of that I started working more and more with the course so briefing on all the uh, promotion courses the command courses dealing with patients obviously doing educational briefs blah 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 but uh, eventually I, I decided that I needed to leave DCMH and I, I went and worked in Derriford Hospital I went and managed uh, liaison psychiatry team which is basically mental health in the general hospital so I stepped completely away from the military which was a, a real wrench um, but it, it was something I felt I needed to do so that was 17 um, and I went back into the mental health sphere but and interestingly I dealt with quite a lot of veterans and RN veterans when I was based at Derriford um, so it, it gave me a, a different view because I'd only dealt with serving personnel. Okay. Um, and then I basically won the lottery in my own way, really. I got, I got a phone call from the core RSM, Dave Mason, and him and the former CG, DCG, sorry, Richard Spencer, had been working hard in the background to try and get me back and to come and work purely for the core employed by the the RN charity so I, I got that phone call in uh, the end of 2018 getting my, my years mixed up and then I started working for the the Royal Marines charity so the RMA the Royal Marines charity in March of last year so my role's changed now from from what it used to be in the DCMH. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I ended up in, in this position now. That's perfect. Um, we got our hands on you. <laughs> but we'll be able to get into our fold. And, uh -huh. and I know you, you're based down now with our transition support officer, Jim Morris, down at Stonehouse yeah. Barracks in the, the old Drew Shed, which is the new gym. Uh, That's right. Yeah. 
right in 30 Commando and HQ down there. Um, and how's that been? Well, like I say, that this genuinely is my my lottery win. It's my dream job. I feel hugely, hugely privileged. I am extremely grateful to to the the charity and and particularly to to Dave Mason and and Richard Spencer for doing all the work in the background, and then for the charity for for taking me on really because it, it's it's like just coming home working with the core. So being based in in thirty is is brilliant. Except at the moment we're we're all working from home because of uh, COVID nineteen. That in itself is a challenge, but but generally being based there is is great. But we Jim and I both cover the whole of the core, so geographically it's a little bit challenging because I I'm really keen to offer the same service throughout the core. And not just locally in in the southwest, which is all I was able to do previously in the DCMH. But but it's working. I've been around all the units quite regularly, even the Scotland ones, some of the RMR bases. So so my remit now is education to the serving corps, and I can so that's a lot of command and command briefs, advising command on how to manage people and also dealing with individuals who are serving who have low level alcohol issues. So they, if they've got significant alcohol problems, they should still go to DCMH. But if there's low level issues, I can still see people serving. So that's throughout the core. And then the big addition is RN veterans, which I, I wasn't familiar with with that sphere before, but I, I am now. And also dependents, so dependents of serving and dependents of veterans. I was so going to ask that. Yeah. So it's so quite a big catchment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've worked with a couple of wives, and clearly I, I need to keep people's confidence, so I won't go into cases too much, but that this role has opened my eyes to the pressures on serving personnel who have issues at home. So if you have a family member with an alcohol issue and you've still got to go to work every day, that's really difficult. You know, it might be a mum. I've, I've been supporting a lad whose mum is dependent. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's a, a whole new area really. But I'm hugely, hugely privileged to be in this role. You know, I, I, every day I just kind of go, really, is this, is this really what I'm allowed to do? So, you know, it's, I'm not saying I'm, I'm sitting back, you know, just in, enjoying it all. It is challenging. It's, it's psychologically, it's taxing. I do take on a lot myself, um, which clearly through supervision I deal with um, one of the challenges for me were increasingly in mental health is it's brilliant that it's now in the arena and we talk about it however there are a lot of people out there who are pretending to be professionals shall we say or offering spurious treatments that are right. evidence-based so as a nurse I have to practice in an evidence evidence-based way i'm registered i have to keep my registration so you know i have to work within standards and i've said this a couple of times to people i guess that the way the way to look at it is if if you needed an operation you'd want a qualified surgeon to do it you wouldn't just let anyone mess with whatever that body part was so yeah. why would you let unqualified people mess with your head? You know, if, if somebody goes on a, a weekend's clay pigeon shoot, does that qualify them to call themselves an experienced sniper? And there's a little bit of that, unfortunately, in the mental health world. So I, ju I just wanted to make that point, get it out there, that if you do need help, just check out who you're getting that help from make sure it's evidence-based, make sure it's safe, because that's all it's about. Any mental health professional wants to provide safe treatment, because if you think how 
how complex we all are. Somebody starts messing with with your emotions, with with if you've got a diagnosis, a mental health diagnosis, it's really dangerous. So, you know, in this role, I'm able to get a bit of a message out as well and, and try and make sure people get get either signposted or have the right treatment from from within within the military itself. Absolutely. Um, one kind of final thing I wanted to ask you about was so at the minute obviously we're in we're in this lockdown and no one really knows when it's going to end um and it's a big adjustment to everyone i know a lot of military guys and veterans are, are kind of semi used to these kind of adjustments with with operations and tours and, and all that kind of stuff but you know if there's anyone out there who is maybe currently having treatment or Mm-hmm. from some of the stuff we've talked about now that they, they, they maybe think oh, okay maybe I do need to seek out this help and you know they're struggling a little bit more now because we're all locked down and we're in the houses 95% of the time is, is there any advice you can give them um can you help people remotely can they just shoot you an email or a phone call absolutely yeah so so I think you spot on this is a a really big adjustment for everyone that that's the word adjustment you know, none of us are used to this. I think serving personnel, you're used to going away and being on that kind of lockdown, if you like, on ops, but you knew it came to an end. And I think that's what's spiralling people out at the, at the moment. So the first thing is you can only work on what you know, and that is just go day by day because none of us know really what's happening next. So small chunks, get through your day, keep an eye on your drinking. So I've been asked to do a couple of videos that will probably be out on social media soon. And one of the big things is this is a bit like some crazy leave period, but we don't know when it's ending, but we've still got a kind of work as well. We're not on leave. So treat your Monday to Thursday, Monday to Friday, like a school night, you know, in terms of drinking, if that's your normal routine, don't slip into drinking in the week. Keep an eye on what you are drinking, you know, try and distract yourself if you're feeling that you are slipping down that that road. And of course, yeah, I can absolutely, my support at the moment is, is mainly via phone or or Skype calls with people. And, and in terms of contacting me, so you said at the beginning, Mark, you'd leave my details, but if people go on to the, the charity website, you will see my contact details there via email. Social media, some people see me on social media. Um, the Magnificent Seven from 4-2, that's always a way in as well. I, I run that page. So we won't go down that rabbit hole, but just getting that one out there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just I guess the initial bit will be through the, the charity webpage and then go from there. All right, perfect. Yeah, n- nobody needs to struggle. That, that's the... That's the the big statement, Mark, is nobody needs to struggle despite all this at the moment. We can be creative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, guys, all you people listening to this, all you guys out there uh, listening to this now, you you may not have even been aware that Pam worked for the charity. Now you are. So if you do need the help um, and the support, don't be shy. Reach out. I am going to put all of Pam's contact details uh, somewhere in this podcast probably written in the show notes beneath it um, and tell people tell other people too. spread the word let everybody know um, that the support and, and the help is there for those that need it not just serving guys it's serving retired and members of the wider core family Pam is there anything else you'd like to add just before we wrap things up yeah just just seek help if if you're not okay so there's there's a lot of fragility in these reach out statements because what what does it mean but ultimately it means you just speak to someone might be your mate but you need to say if 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 things aren't okay don't don't do this alone don't let pride get in the way you know that there is the help out there and i appreciate sometimes it's too too much sometimes 
you, you just need to say this is really pants <laughs> and then we'll work backwards from there. But thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to me gob off. I'm quite good at that. <laughs> now, thank you. Thank you for giving up the time. I, I know that when this goes out, um, it's going to do a lot of good. Um, at the very, very least, it's raised awareness um, to your existence and, and that the service that you do offer. Um, so thank you, Pam. I appreciate it. Um, and hopefully, when all this lockdown stuff is over, I can get myself back down to Stonehouse. So maybe we can do a little bit of fizz in that new CrossFit gym. Absolutely. Another <laughs> CrossFit. <laughs> Perfect, Pam. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cheers, Mark. That was Pam telling us all a little bit about what she does, where she specialises and what her role is now within the charity. Now, I try to say this as much as possible when I'm doing these podcasts. If anything that you've heard today strikes a chord with you, if you think that Pam can help you or anyone that you know, if anyone that you do know is suffering um, from any of these issues that we've talked about, please don't hesitate to get them to pick up the phone and call her and reach out and ask for some support. One of the really positive things that's come recently was during my last interview with our transition support officer, Jim Morris. He emailed me shortly after the podcast went out and told me that he had people who had listened to the podcast and had contacted him for support and were now in the system getting the help and support that they needed. So it does work. Please, guys, girls, Royal Marine servant, former members of the wider core family, whoever, please don't be afraid to pick up the phone. The help and the support is there, as you've just heard. If you need it, please just pick up and ask. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. This is what we do. Guys, that's it for now. Until next time, thank you as always for listening, for sharing the podcast, for supporting the podcasts. Um, I couldn't do it without your help, without your support. I'm going to continue to do it for as long as I possibly can and spread that word, get the message out there, not just about what we do in the charity, some of the lesser known things where we can help and support members of the wider core family, but also the awesome work that you guys are doing, the fundraisers, the supporters, the welfare workers, the volunteers, all of you guys that help us to carry on doing what it is we do, especially, especially during these strange and unprecedented times like we're facing right now during a lockdown. Guys, I'll see you in the next one.